0: explain and make sure that we see the big picture, Um, because we're dealing with issues that uh, ultimately encounter the whole Bible. Uh, For lack of a better term, I'm trying to give you a synopsis of uh, the whole Bible today, and that's definitely not going to be something that is going to be easy, but I want to make sure that we get the big picture, understand it all, and apply it properly. Uh, Often when people hear that we're not under the law anymore, that means, oh, okay, then that means I can do whatever I want to do. And the answer to that question would be, yes, you can do whatever you want to do when you're submitted to the Spirit of God. And that would be the crucial element. So in the news uh, this week, a well-known Christian family made headlines. Uh, Many of you probably watched their show, or some of you might watch their show We won't get into name-calling and tell exactly who they are, but most of you know who it is. One of their oldest sons apparently did some very inappropriate things years ago when he was 14 years old. And the world cried hypocrites with this family's sin that came out. Beloved, at the heart of this issue is the fact that evangelical Christianity is not presenting an accurate view of the gospel... We often present our lives, that is, how we look, as the gospel instead of who and what the grace of God has done in us, for us, and through us. We have failed to acknowledge following God is not about being clean or presenting ourselves as better than other people. We often present being a Christian as being good, moral people. Superior people, people who keep righteous rules over the truth of the gospel. Beloved, the reason why the world cries hypocrite is because the world as a, or the, the church has failed to explain the gospel properly, in my opinion. I really believe we've made it about how we look on the outside instead of what the gospel truly is. We are sinners, all of us in the room, Saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. We are different by grace alone. But even still, we are all works in progress. Amen? And our, our hope is not in how clean we are, but in the grace of God that is working in us. That is so very important. We know our standing with God is based completely on who Jesus is, correct? And what He did for us. Instead of, look at me. Our message should be, look at Christ. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Is that the message that comes out of our mouth enough? Is that what we are affirming enough? No, I think the problem is, is that we look too much like Acts 15, some of these Jewish believers, even the Jewish believers, that said, hey, it's about getting circumcised and obeying the law. I think all too often we make it about what we look like when the gospel is not about how we look. It's about who Jesus Christ is. You say, oh, I don't have that problem, <laughs> Well, then you probably do have that problem. (laughs) We must be people who properly proclaim grace. We must come to recognize and explain that anything we have... and all that we have become... and everything that we do that honors God... is from God because of His grace. That's so crucial. If we don't present Christianity this way... Always we are vulnerable to presenting a wrong message to the world of what the gospel is. You understand the moral majority is now the moral minority. And that the moral majority for so long made it about what we do instead of the gospel. And now we're paying the consequences. Do you understand? We screamed over and over, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. Instead of, Jesus is good, Jesus forgives, we need grace. And so what's happened? They look at all Christians as hypocrites. Because let me tell you, every single person in this room has a closet. I promise you. If, if we all had everything exposed that we've ever done, we would walk out of this room in total shame, every one of us. The fact of the matter is is that it's only by grace that we are saved. Through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's not the message that we have given the world. Is it? Last week we began to unfold the role of the law of Moses in the New Covenant believer. We saw this was the first doctrinal crisis of the church. Today we see the glorious grace of God is what saves us, not our so-called good deeds. We saw that this doctrinal issue led to the first church council in Jerusalem. We saw in Acts 15, 1 to 29, it breaks down into five sections. The conflict, the consideration, the confirmation, the conclusion, and the council. We got through one of those. Lord willing, we'll get through another one this week. We covered the conflict last week. We saw that the conflict included the antagonists, the early Judaizers, professing Jewish believers in Christ who taught Gentiles must keep the law to be saved. They made works a prerequisite for salvation. They imposed the requirements of the Old Covenant upon the New Covenant believers. The borderline believers in Jerusalem were also included in this group in verse 5. Those that were believers, but they were saying we must direct them to keep the law still of Moses. We also saw the defenders of the faith. We saw Paul and Barnabas stood up to the false teachers. They determined to go to Jerusalem to get to the bottom of the issue and get the apostles' authoritative word on the matter. Along the way, they did not allow allow the doctrinal crisis to rob them of joy in God's work. We need to be the same way, ladies and gentlemen. As the world around us falls apart, we need to keep our eyes on Christ and rejoice in those that come to Christ. And then we saw the breaking point. In verses 4 to 5, notice in your Bible it states, When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. Some of the sect of the Pharisees had believed stood up saying... It is necessary to circumcise them to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The question is raised, is it necessary to circumcise the Gentile believers and direct them to obey the law of Moses? Again, the, questions is, the question is, are the requirements of the law of Moses binding upon the Gentile believers in Jesus? So then we began to briefly introduce the second section, the Consideration. We saw in verses 15 or chapter 15 verse 6 to 7 notice the apostles and the elders came together to look into the matter after they had been had been much debate Peter stood up and said to them and he begins a sermon we started with this consider the argument literally the apostles and the elders came together to look into the word that is this doctrinal issue This was truly a difficult issue. In Genesis 17, I'd make you look there, but I I won't get through my sermon if I did. So just take it from me. You can look it up later. Genesis 17, Abraham was directed to circumcise not only his children, but anyone who was brought into his family from outside, even those that sojourned with them. This was a requirement for all of the descendants of Abraham. In Exodus 12, 48, if a stranger sojourned with Israel, or with the Israelites, they were directed, if they were to celebrate the Passover supper with them, all males must be circumcised. So that means even if you had a visitor, those males that were worshiping with you ...must be circumcised. So when these Jewish guys come up in Acts 15 and say, Hey, we got to circumcise them. All they're doing is what? Keeping the law. They're just doing what the law of Moses told them to do. Hey, they're worshipping with us. So the males must be circumcised. So this was the requirement of the law of Moses. Circumcision was required for worship with Israel. The law was not just a suggestion... For the foreigner. It was a requirement for the foreigner if they sojourned with them. So this is why the debate ensued. Now, the question then becomes, is there discontinuity or continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? a big word. You might want to write that down. Discontinuity. What does discontinuity mean? Discontinuity would say that the Old Covenant is the Old Covenant and the Old Testament is the Old Testament, it has absolutely no bearing on the New Covenant. And the New Testament. Old Testament is old and New Testament is new. All that happened in the Old Testament is Old Testament. All that happened in the New Testament is New Testament. It's completely distinct. Discontinuity. Continuity would say this. That there, it's the same God. It's the same. Everything's perfect. It's in perfect continuity. The Old Testament is the Old Testament, but it's just like the New Testament. So if you really want to understand the New te- or the Old Testament, read the New Testament because the New Testament is going to just inform the Old Testament more. You're going to understand it better. Okay. So what's the answer? Yes. Yes. And so, for some, in some way, I have to tell you and explain to you discontinuity and continuity in this whole section. And I've got to explain to you that there are some things that are discontinued, or discontinuity, and some things are continuity. And to be able to line that out and tell you all of that in one paragraph, guess what? This isn't going to happen. It's not going to happen. And I would argue that most of us in the room are going to study this concept the rest of your life. And you're going to find nuances where, oh, that works, and nope, that doesn't, and oh, that is, and that isn't. This is the same, but that's not. And you're going to find this all the way through. But you can see why the Jewish believers were saying, hey, they need to be circumcised to keep the law, right? They're thinking what? It's the same God. And it is the same God. So why shouldn't it be the same? Why shouldn't they circumcise them? Why shouldn't we be keeping the law? Why aren't we keeping the Sabbath? Because after all, we're sitting here on Sunday. We should be here yesterday. Why aren't we here yesterday? Why is our service today, not yesterday? The question is the same question. It's a discontinuity, continuity issue. What comes through and what doesn't? What is continuity and what is discontinuity? So Peter stands up and speaks. And he gives his sermon on discontinuity, continuity. And he lays it out. Consider the truth. Notice what Peter says. Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. That by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as also he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which is neither our father's nor we have been able to bear? But we believe. That we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. There are five points here to Peter's defense of the truth for us to take to heart. And I think they will help to clarify the issue a little bit as we go along. Then we'll do James's sermon next week and get a little bit more muddied. But we'll still get it. And we'll see a little bit clearer. As we go along, and then we'll go through the rest of the book of Acts and we'll see it a little bit better, and then we'll move on to the epistles and get a little bit better after that. But let's walk down through Peter's sermon. First, I want you to notice the five points. First, Peter's appeal to his authority. Peter's appeal to his authority. Notice it says, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. It was me. <laughs> In other words, I'm God's chosen instrument. Now, that's a pretty powerful statement. That could sound a little bit arrogant, unless you're the Apostle Peter speaking inerrant words. And the fact of the matter is, Peter starts with his Apostle's badge, in effect. His special calling to be the first Apostle to the Gentiles. Peter states, in effect, God has called me to a groundbreaking new ministry to the Gentiles. I was the first to go to the Gentiles. Peter was obviously a leader in the church. No, he was not the first pope. But yes, he was a leader. He was an apostle. The risen Christ directly called Peter. He was the first apostle to go to the Gentiles. So when Peter stood up to speak, Peter, the people stopped and listened to him. And Peter's opening phrase appeals to his authority. Now, I want to make this clear. It's Peter's authority, not just any person that speaks on the issue. And boy, we hear this all the time, don't we? Again, I've, over the years, struggled with this issue of continuity, discontinuity. And I have struggled over how much of, if any, of the Mosaic law was binding upon believers. I have wrestled with these issues. If the law doesn't save, then is it not just also a part of sanctification? Is the Mosaic law a part of our sanctification? One thing i found is many scholars have an opinion on the issue. But often the arguments are based on logic and philosophy rather than just taking the authoritative word of God at face value. So listen, listen to me closely. Anything I say that doesn't line up with scripture, chuck it. Stay with Scripture. Scripture is going to give you the clarity on this issue, and it's going to take some time. Just as they stopped and listened to Peter, we need to stop and listen to our Bible. We need to read our Bible, and we need to understand what it says, and then go with what it says. Don't go with our man-made logic, trying to figure out how we make these things work in a perfect way. Because haven't we found in Scripture, I don't know about you guys, but I've found a lot of things that seem like a tension in human logic, but they're true because God's Word says it. Examples, like the Trinity. How can there be three persons and only one God? Answer, because that's who God is. Because His Word says it. The authority says that. Same thing goes with this issue. Same thing. Listen closely. This issue must be defined by Scripture, not by our Logic or reason. Because sometimes our logic and reason is not informed by scripture. It's informed by man-made philosophies. I think as we study Acts 15 and Galatians, hopefully some of you are reading Galatians, right? You're reading Galatians? Some of you? Oh, good. That's good news. As we study those things in the other New Testament epistles, we're going to see clear the picture of the question. It's not going to be an issue that is going to have that simple, clear-cut, one-paragraph answer. I believe there's some overlap. that Both are true to a degree. But one thing we all need to do is stop listening to uh, all the experts, per se, that write big books that don't have anything about Scripture in it, but lots of philosophy, and start looking at the Scriptures and reading them. We need to be like those who who heard Peter. Notice in 15, 12, it says, all people kept silent. That's pretty interesting, huh? They were listening. We need to also. From Scripture. By the way, again, I'm not saying I'm Peter. You hear that? I'm not saying I'm Peter. i not an apostle. I'm trying to give you what the passage says. Listen closely. So now, Peter continues his defense. Second, Peter reminds them of his previous ministry. He states, by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. This is Peter's summary of how he had gone to the Gentile Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and verse uh, chapter 11. Peter had given the gospel to the centurion and Cornelius had believed in God and turned for, to God and believed in Jesus. Peter then reminded them that the conversions were legit because the Holy Spirit indwelled Cornelius, look at verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, testifies to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us also. The indwelling Spirit was the evidence of the new covenant, folks. The Holy Spirit's indwelling presence is the belie- in the believer is the confirmation of a new heart and a new relationship with God. They were sealed with the Spirit because they were truly converted by God. Peter's point is, the gospel is for the Gentiles. The Gentiles got the Spirit without works of the law. The believers knew they were God's own through the indwelling presence of God. And the Jewish believers knew that the Gentiles were true converts because they had the same indwelling Spirit in both of them. Now... This is not fully developed in Peter's sermon. But the indwelling presence of the Spirit is a key distinction of the New Covenant relationship. So in other words, when Peter says this, all the in the room that were listening would say, Oh yeah, New Covenant. Oh yeah, they're in the New Covenant. Oh yeah, Jeremiah 31. Oh yeah, Ezekiel. They would know these things. It would be in their mind. They would understand. They got the Spirit, so they're in the Covenant. They're in the new covenant. This is something that would have under they would have understood immediately. I'm convinced of this. Jesus said as much to the disciples on the night, he said the same thing to them on the night that he was betrayed. Look over at John 14, 17. Again, this is the new covenant distinction. The Spirit of God indwells the believer. John 14. This is a crucial point. Listen closely. Verse 16, we'll start there. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Another of the same kind, by the way, like him. That he may be with you forever. That's pretty crucial. Verse 17, that is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. That is a key distinction. Now you can argue all you want about the discontinuity continuity issue. But it appears to me very clearly that 16 and 17 shows some kind of change. Very clearly. Jesus says I'm going to send another helper. And the helper that's with you is going to be in you. And that is a difference. There is a change. Does everybody understand this? So this has to be New Covenant language. The world can't receive this Spirit. The only way it can receive Him is if He makes them know Him. That's crucial. So the Spirit has to regenerate the heart, give the the unbeliever a heart to believe, so that they will know that He is with them and He will be in them. Pentecost was different. Everybody agrees with that, right? Acts 2 is different. If you're walking walking through your Bible and you come to Acts 2 and you don't go, oh, yeah, this is, you know, just like Sinai. Just like when Moses came down off the mountain. It looks just like it. All that you say, we will do and go disobey. No. They worship God like never before. The whole world's turned upside down by 11 Common ordinary men why because the spirit of God's doing something amazing different everybody knows this right you know this when we go through acts a permanent filling with the spirit was a reality of it a, 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 is a reality of every true believer now an important note here the indwelling presence of the spirit is a crucial point in answering the law question very Very important. The Spirit's indwelling in us is a very important aspect of whether or not we're under the Mosaic Law or not. And whether we should keep it or not. We are not under the Law of Moses. Instead, we are under the ruling presence of the Spirit of God. That's the way I would argue. We are no longer under the Mosaic Law, but we are under the ruling presence of God. God literally indwells his believers and works within them to cause them to obey. I would suggest this is the mind of Christ that's referenced in 1 Corinthians 2:16. This is the grace of God that rules in our hearts through the spirit of God who dwells within us. To say the gentiles must come under the law of Moses was to deny the indwelling presence of the spirit. Did you hear me? That's so crucial. If you say you must keep the Mosaic Law, you are saying the new covenant is not in effect and the Spirit of God does not indwell believers. you understand? So you can't go back to that old covenant and say let's do that and keep that because if you do, you're denying the Spirit's indwelling presence in believers. That's pretty important, isn't it? You could never say go back and do that Mosaic Law because if you did, you would be denying the God's indwelling work in his own. Second, and to say the Gentiles must come under the law of Moses was to deny the new covenant relationship with Christ. In other words, we're under a different kind of relationship. Previously, God was in a sanctuary or in a holy of holies, separated, right? Right? And the high priest could only go in once in a while, once a year, right? Nobody could get into the presence of God, nobody could enter there. That's a different relationship. That's a relationship that distinguished everybody. High priest once. Levitical priesthood could get a little closer. Then the other people, actually only the men, then the women, and then the Gentiles. And that's how it was. And that's how it was established with the way that it was, uh, when it established the ark and all these things and how it was established, the, the worship in the temple area. So to say the, that we're still under the Mosaic law is to say you can't have relationship with Christ. It blows the whole thing up. You cannot say we're under the Mosaic law. If you say we're under the Mosaic law, you're saying we can't have relationship with Christ and I would say that there's a problem with that. So when Peter brings up the Spirit's presence, he is pointing to the inclusion of the Gentiles in the New Covenant relationship. The New Covenant relationship is characterized by the Spirit's indwelling presence. By the way, if you're going to believe 100% on in continuity, I think, I think you've got to circumcise your children on the eighth day, your boys. I'm being honest. And if you're really going to be consistent, I think you need to get the Levitical priesthood, to do it. That's not happening. Promise. Fairly sure the Jews aren't going to want to do that for you. The Old Testament had prophesied of this new covenant relationship, and then everybody in the room says, well, we just spiritualize it make it baptism, right? I'm sorry, that just doesn't work. Scripture does not point that way. The Old Testament had prophesied of this new covenant relationship to come. And it's called it new. And it's coming. It hasn't happened yet. It's going to come. That's what they said in the prophets. And who were the prophets that said it? Turn with me. Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Ezekiel told us that it was coming. told the Jews that it was coming. Ezekiel 36 going to make you find some neat spots in your Bible, unless you have one of those phones that you just put in the place, Ezekiel 36, let's look, 36, 22, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. Why did they profane it? Because they said, all that you say we will do, and then they didn't do it. They didn't keep the Mosaic law. They weren't holy. They weren't set apart. They weren't distinct. The law crushed them. And in fact, they, ex- they d- shamed God's name. They had his name, they were his people, but they did not look like him at all. They were far from holy, weren't they? And God says, I'm going to make you holy for my name's sake. Notice, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations. Which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord declares the Lord, when I prove myself holy among you in your sight. For, because, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Uh Uh-oh, this is getting confusing. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now friends, when I read this, I get like a million questions that come to mind. How about you? Anybody getting any questions? Has this happened yet no he hasn't gathered them back into the land and sprinkled clean their their hearts as a vast majority many have what rejected him there's a the vast majority of Jews have rejected their Messiah so if Mike you told me that this is a new covenant I will put my spirit within you is why I say that is it already or not yet? Yes, it's already and not yet. It's been inaugurated, but it has not been completely fulfilled. It's been started, but it has not been completely fulfilled. This sees the end, but the start has happened. And what is that start? The inauguration. And that includes, as we see in Acts, it includes Gentiles. Gentiles are included in this new covenant. We know this from Hebrews too. We'll see in a second. It is started with a remnant of Jews. The 7,000 that have not bowed the need to Baal, is the illustration that Paul uses in Romans 11. So there are some. You got Peter, the 11. And then you have a huge portion of Gentiles that have this. Now notice the characteristics though of the new covenant. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues. So, obedience is a characteristic of a New Covenant Christian. So, do we chuck the Mosaic Law? No. As long as what the Spirit's requiring in this time, in this administration, is the same as what was in the old. If it's not the same, then I don't think we're required to do it anymore. How will we know? I believe the Spirit of God will direct us through the Word of God what we are supposed to do and what we're not. And what has been repeated and what hasn't been repeated. Ultimately, I do believe we'll obey. But ultimately, it's all going to happen because of what? Grace. The Spirit of God working in us. The Spirit of grace. Now... The Apostle Peter pointed to the inclusion of the Spirit's indwelling presence as proof that the Gentiles were included in this New Covenant relationship. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 8. The second passage that references the New Covenant relationship in the Old Testament is Jeremiah 31. 31. It was read today. It is repeated in Hebrews 8. And so therefore it obviously applies to the church. Notice it says in Hebrews 8.6. Hebrews 8.6. But now he, that is Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry. By as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. That's very important. We're in a better covenant than the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic law. Which has been enacted... On better promises. (laughs) What were the promises of the old covenant? Anybody know? All that you say we will do. That was a promise. It was a bilateral covenant. That means that they made promises. God, you say it, we'll do it. Here's the promises for the new covenant. You will obey me. You're going to obey me. You know why? Because I'm going to help you obey. The Spirit of God is going to work in you and cause you to walk in His statutes. That's a whole different thing, isn't it? So, look at Hebrews 8, 7. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion uh, sought for a second. For finding fault with them, He says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of judah not like the covenant which i made with their fathers on the day when i took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of egypt for they did not continue in my covenant and i did not i did not care for them says the lord for this is the covenant that i will make with the house of israel after those days says the lord i will put my law in their minds and I will write them in their hearts, on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said, A new covenant he has made the, made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to disappear. I'm not going to give you a full exposition of that. Just know this. There has been a change happened. Correct? Definitely. No doubt about it. Change. So when Peter, back to Acts 15, brings up the Holy Spirit's presence in Cornelius, he gives two crucial points for the law. First. He's emphasizing the Gentiles' inclusion in the New Covenant apart from keeping the law. That's very important. Gentiles are included in the New Covenant relationship apart from keeping the Mosaic law. Do you understand? He is saying that. Second, the Spirit's presence that will empower the Gentiles to obey the Lord how the Lord requires them to obey. In other words, this is implied. They will obey what God wants them to obey. Why? Because the Spirit of God dwells in them. And the Spirit of God will use the Word of God the way it's supposed to be applied to a Gentile. Okay? This reminds us of Romans chapter 8. Turn over there real quick. Romans chapter 8. This is so crucial. The the Spirit's indwelling presence in the New Covenant is, I would argue, the, uh, the crucial point. It is the main point. It's all about God's grace through the Spirit of God working. This reminds us of Romans 8, 15 to 16. Look with me. It says, Romans 8, 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which you cry out. We cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, folks, I cannot stress this enough to you. This is a completely different relationship. To have the Spirit of God indwelling in you and crying out with our hearts that we are children of God, that He is our Abba Father, that's a completely different relationship. And for Peter to bring up the Spirit's indwelling presence is to say, look, they're in that relationship. And it has absolutely nothing to do with how well they keep the Mosaic Law. Nothing. Nothing to do with that. They're in the New Covenant. Also look at Galatians 4. It's very interesting. Galatians 4. Paul uses the same argument against the Judaizers when he writes his letter. It's the same one. Galatians 4.1 Now I say... As long as the heir is a child, and he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the fathers. father. So also we, while we were children, were being held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem, free us, those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons, because you are sons. God has sent forth the spirit of his Son in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. If a son, then heirs through God. New relationship, right? I don't know about you. But it's by this relationship that I obey God. He's my Father. I know Him. The Spirit's in my heart. The Spirit convicts me, directs me, confronts me, encourages me. Through the Word of God, yes. But ultimately, that's a different kind of relationship than what the Mosaic people or the people of Israel had. Right? All right. so that's what Peter's saying. So back to Acts 15. Peter's initial argument is... Be careful. God has told us that the Mosaic law is not required of the Gentiles by putting the Spirit in the Gentile believers. Did you hear me? God has told us that we're not required to keep the Mosaic law by putting the Spirit of God in Gentiles. By bringing them into that new covenant relationship, He's saying, you're not under the Mosaic law anymore. And God did not say... Keep the law and circumcise them, then I will indwell them. He didn't say that. He gave them the Spirit initially, right away, without them being circumcised on the eighth day, or being raised under the law, or writing those things on their doorposts, or being taught all those things and laws to do. He gave them the Spirit of God. And every single person in this room that's a genuine believer has the Spirit of God indwelling in you. It's a fact. Do I have board you? It's a little warm in the room. We're going to have to crank the air up next week. These are very important things, guys. This is so crucial. Because of what I'm about to say, some of y'all are going to say, what? If you didn't get all this previous, you're going to go, what? Listen to me. Notice, Peter says, third, Peter explains, faith alone saves. Peter reminds them, God made both Jews and Gentiles new by grace through faith alone. just like us. Look at verse 9, and he made no distinction between him and the, or between them and us, cleansing their hearts by faith. We see here the way of conversion is by grace through faith alone. God cleansed the Jews and the Gentiles through faith. In Jesus Christ. Salvation is always through faith in Jesus Christ. I believe when Peter talks about cleansing here, he's referring to the same rebirth and justification that Paul speaks of in Titus 3, 5, and 6. I'll read it. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly, Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So salvation is found through faith alone, by grace alone. Peter implies obedience to the law of Moses never saved a soul. Everybody agrees with that, right? Deliverance from sin and justification was only acquired through faith alone in Christ alone. Now, let me ask you a question. Do we apply this? No, I don't think we always do. I think all too often, back to our original story, we have presented a moral concept of being a good person is what a Christian is. Instead of faith independence, and trust in Christ, we presented it as a do this and then you're saved. We present it by not exalting Christ with our lips and with our lives and acknowledging our own sin to our fellow Christians. Family members and neighbors and co-workers. Do you understand folks? Let me ask you a question. If you asked your children, hey, who's the who's the most righteous person that you know? Who would they say? I hope they would say Jesus Christ. I hope it's not daddy. Because the fact of the matter is, I don't know about you guys, but I still sin, and they see it. And if that's their definition of righteousness, we got a problem. There is only one hope for all of us, and his name is Jesus. I think all too often we are our heroes in our testimony. All too often. We don't say it's about trusting in Christ. We say it's about look at me. And I love these I love this that show, but I'm telling you, I said this two weeks ago before all this news broke. When I watched the show once, I was like, man, they just look too perfect. They presented everything as perfect. That they none of them kiss before they get married. That's a problem. Now you say, what's the problem with not kissing before you get married? Ben and Kayla did it. That's not a, that's not a problem. The problem is, is that it's about not kissing before you get married. Instead of, I'm a sinner. Jesus is Lord. He died to pay for my sin. That message comes out every once in a while. Very rarely on the show. If they knew and were exalted, hey, I put my pants on like you, I'm a sinner, my kids are sinners, we're this way, I'm saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, guess what? The show wouldn't be airing. So they had to make it about morals. And this is the whole thing. That's not what salvation is. That's not what the gospel is. Do you get this, folks? We fall right back into the trap. It's by faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, does faith alone, by grace alone, mean that we are lawless people? No, obviously not. May it never be, as Paul would say later in Romans 6. Faith in Christ leads to obedience, doesn't it? Faith produces obedience. But obedience to Christ, Christ's law, was not the same as the Mosaic law. I'm convinced of this. Also, the believer was able to obey the law of Christ because the Spirit would empower them to obey it. Again, apart from me, you can do nothing. But the implication is, with me, you can obey me. Peter's point is the Gentiles had faith in Christ and this faith was the new ruling principle in their hearts. They were slave, they were not slaves to the Mosaic law that condemned every Jewish person previously. They had been slave, they had been saved through faith in Christ. And now they were able to obey. But not obey the Mosaic law as we'll talk about in a second. So Peter appealed to his authority. Then he reflected on his ministry to the Gentiles. Then he explained faith alone saves. And then Peter confronted the wrong view. Look at it. Now, I tell you, you can read this a million different ways. But I'm telling you, this verse is the death blow to the Mosaic law. And I am thankful. I'm thankful. Right here. It's the death blow. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Now that's a question, right? And the question has an implied answer, which is what? What's the implied answer? We shouldn't. It's crazy. Why in the world would we do it? Why would we put the Mosaic Law on somebody else's neck when we couldn't keep it? That's what's the implied answer. By the way, I think that includes one of the Ten Commandments. Being honest. The Sabbath. Very clearly, that is Mosaic law. Very clearly. There you go, bro. It's part of the Mosaic law. Some people have asked me the question over the last couple of years. Why would we place that on somebody else? When they couldn't do it. God doesn't want us to. Friends, I'm convinced this verse is the death blow to the Mosaic law. This means, put real simple, we are not under the Mosaic Law anymore. Peter says, you are literally putting God to the test by placing upon the necks of the disciples a burden which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. In other words, you are testing God by placing these Gentile believers under the requirements of the Mosaic Law. You are sinning against God by making them get circumcised. You are literally sinning against God. I think that's pretty death blow. What do you think? Mosaic law is done. They can't keep it. We couldn't keep it. And our fathers couldn't keep it. The previous covenant was a bilateral covenant. Which means both parties agreed to it. And both parties committed to it in their own strength. All that you say, we will do. And God said, do this? Okay, we'll do it. Split, throw the blood on it? You promised. <laughs> if you don't, blessings are. if you do it, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you're going to be cursed. Now, some people would say at this point, well, does that mean that none of that matters? Don't even read your Old Testament? No, I'm not saying that. Don't go there. But I am telling you this. So the requirements of the Mosaic Law are not binding on a New Covenant believer. However, many of the Old (laughs) Covenant, some of them, not many, some of the the commands of the Old Covenant are repeated in the New Covenant. And they are part of what Christ wants us to do. And in fact, the ones that he has us to do are actually higher in standard than previous which we'll talk about. But the new covenant is unilateral covenant. That is, the covenant is promised and fulfilled by one party. Who's the party? God. God accomplishes it. How does he accomplish it? He gives a spirit, and the spirit works in us. And God accomplishes obedience through his children. The new covenant relationship is different. We are part of the new relationship with God. Again, what is this new relationship? Peter concludes with it, Peter's exhortation to remember the gospel. Here it is. But believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. Peter concludes salvation is through grace alone. Deliverance from sin, deliverance from the power of sin and the penalty of sin is through God's unmerited favor from the Lord Jesus. Grace saves, not works. Grace not keeping the law. Grace not being circumcised. Now, yes, grace is active, as we will see. But grace is the driving power and influence that saves people in the new covenant. Fact. Grace does it. And I find it so interesting that we as parents don't always stick to this. I don't always stick to this. I constantly expect them to obey without crying out to God to give them grace. Now, yes, we discipline our children. But ultimately, it should always drive them as a tutor to what? Needing God's grace. Any spouses in here get upset with your spouse? And you look at them and say, well, I expect you to act better. I expect you to treat me better. I do it, unfortunately, all too often. The problem is is, is that we don't realize that it's only the unmerited favor of God that's going to cause them to do it. And instead of pointing them to the gospel, the power source, the thing that they have to have their trust and commitment to at the time, we then say, stop doing that or I'm going to give you retribution. I'm going to treat you bad. We're going back to the Mosaic law. I'm going to bless you if you bless me and I'm going to curse you if you curse me. We don't treat our people, we don't treat people like the gospel is the thing that changes lives. We treat it as if it's about me doing something. (laughs) So ironic right now. There's so so much things. Y'all just don't know what Pastor Mike sees while he's up here. It's amazing the things that I see while I'm up here talking to you. It's just, Lord, we need grace. We need lots of grace. My family members need grace. Right now. Beloved, the evil one hates God being worshipped as Savior and Lord. He hates it. He wants people to rob God of His glory. He wants people before salvation to seek to exalt themselves through so-called deeds, good deeds. Why? Because it robs God of glory. So he does everything to make it about what you do. He's telling you that all the time. He does it with believers and unbelievers. So before conversion, Satan whispers in the ear of the Judaizer to add works to make it about human achievement. And after salvation, the devil deceives even some believers to exalt personal works as merit before God. What's that doing? It's undermining grace. And if it's undermining grace, it's undermining God. If you make it about what you do, you've missed the point. You're actually siding with Satan. You're testing God. But God's plan is to provide salvation for justification to sanctification to glorification. And I'm completely convinced of this. Listen. We are saved by grace, and that includes justification, sanctification, and glorification. Now, what that means is, is that you will be sanctified only by grace, too. Now, grace working within a soul causes a person to do it. We are literally obeying God. It's me obeying, but the reason why I obey is because the Spirit of God working within me. So it's grace. Nobody gets to heaven and say says, man, I really got, you know, about to a 10 on the scale of 1 to 10, or 8. I got to about an 8 in holiness, sanctification. I did a good job, didn't I? Nobody gets to heaven and says that. If you got to 8 on the scale of 1 to 10 on the sanctification scale, you know what you need to do? Drop to your knees and thank God, because it was grace that did that. we take any credit if we take any credit even in our own sanctification i think we're missing it and again back to our our story that oh man time's gone good thing i didn't look um back to our people i mean it's the same issue i believe many of them were are christians i believe it's a christian family probably the problem is is, is that it was all about them That's how it was presented to the world. So what do they cry when something happens? Hypocrite! Should we keep the Ten Commandments? What about all the commandments that are given in the New Testament? I can't answer every one of these questions yet. We'll get there. But let's look at just one key closing point, principle. God's righteousness is consistent over both covenants. Everybody agree with that, right? God, Why? Because God's immutable. He doesn't change. All I would say is that God administers His righteousness in different ways in different covenants. The fact of the matter is we know this. How do we know this? Well, because was what happened before the Mosaic Covenant? There was no law. So how was God administering His righteousness then? His way. Was it the same requirements as the Mosaic Law after Mosaic Law came? No, before it was different. Is it different now? Absolutely it's different now. He administers his righteousness in a different way. In the Old Testament, how did he administer his righteousness? Here's one example. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. He was tough. Was he just? Yes, he was just. Was he gracious? Yes, he was gracious. But was his justice on display even through his people when he told his people to go in there and kill even the babies? Yeah. That was pretty... It was righteous. He didn't sin. He was righteous in how he administered that. I'm not questioning that. I'm just saying that the way he administers it now, his righteousness is different. He administers his righteousness through... Causing people to see their sin and cry out to a savior. And he he is both the just and the justifier. And he provides grace for us to show off his righteousness. One of the ways we show off his righteousness in the new covenant under Christ is we love as he has loved us. And what is that? What is that? It's this. You ready? Ready? When our enemies strike us in the cheek, we turn the other cheek. No longer an eye for an eye, it's now let me lay down my life for others. Again, does he administer his righteousness a little different in the new covenant than he does the old covenant? Absolutely. You know why he can administer it to that level and that way? Because the Spirit of God indwells as believers. Because God is a gracious God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, We, when we contemplate these truths, they are deep and hard and difficult concepts for us to think through. There are many things in here that probably we still have more questions. Yet, Father, we know that your word is true and that the Spirit of God indwells all true believers that have repented and trusted in Christ alone to save them God we pray that you will help us to trust you help us to look to the gospel help us to not clean up the outside of the cup but to be confessors of sin and repenters quick help us to turn back to you quick Lord help us to reflect your righteousness in this world God help us God, please help us to not make it about us, though. To exalt Jesus Christ, our Lord, the one who came and died in our place and rose from the dead and is ruling at the right hand of the Father and one day will come back for us. We praise you. We thank you for that truth. We thank you for the Spirit's indwelling presence that worked within us to make us holy, a set-apart people for yourself. Thank you for including us in this new covenant, Lord. We commit the rest of the day to you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand, Stephen.